I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Johannesburg in South Africa is Dr. Ladile Makoka, who specializes in nephrology which is all about conditions dealing with the kidneys. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mokoka. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let me start by saying that uh, I'm truly humbled and it's a pleasure to have been invited to come and uh, speak to a person of your caliber and of your experience. And I would like to also say that um, after, good afternoon to you and your listeners as well. Well, thank you for that warm welcome and introduction to the show and really also for joining us in our series on women in medicine. During the course of the series, we've looked at rheumatology, ophthalmology, complementary medicine, public health systems, and now nephrology. So to start with, nephrologists diagnose and treat disorders of the kidneys. Can you share with us what types of conditions you typically treat? So let me maybe start by describing exactly who are nephrologists. So it is a subspecialty within the Department of Internal Medicine and truly focusing on the diseases or illnesses that would affect the function and the structure of the kidney. So what are the common conditions that a nephrologist would have to deal with or treat? It can be what are called acute kidney injury, that can be caused by anything from infections, from trauma, from toxins, either from recreational substances or therapeutic agents. It can only also focus on chronic kidney diseases that could be as a result of complications such as from diabetes, hypertension, and infections such as HIV. And ultimately, um, they do deal with end-stage renal um, diseases in patients whom they would ultimately need a renal replacement therapy in a form of either peritoneal dialysis, hemodialysis, or renal transplant. One of the things that we picked up over the course of the series is that different diseases affect different genders in different ways. So I wondered if there were any particular diseases of the kidney that women are perhaps more predisposed to than men? Thank you for that question. Yes, there are conditions that women are slightly more predisposed in terms of the kidney illnesses than men. And if I were to name quite a few, one would be urinary tract infections. And the reason why women are more likely to be susceptible to urinary tract infections is got to do with our anatomy. Women tend to have a shorter urethra So that makes it easier for the bacteria to travel if it's present to reach the bladder much quicker than it would in in a male person. And number two, we do know that during pregnancy, there's increased risk of urinary tract infections. There's increased risk for the bacteria to actually ascend and reach the kidney and result in what is called pyelonephritis, which is actually an infection that actually affects the kidney. During pregnancy, it's got to do with the hormonal changes that affects the the genitourinary system uh, environment, therefore allowing and actually increasing the risk of women acquiring more urinary tract infection at that time. And pregnancy in ladies, obviously, has its own unique challenges. One is that 
uh, pregnant women, especially in underdeveloped countries uh, such as ours, they are at risk of uh, conditions such as uh, pregnancy-induced hypertension, gestational diabetes, solely because of uh, lack of access or late presentation to antenatal care. Illnesses such as pregnancy-induced hypertension, gestational diabetes, does predispose them to conditions such as preeclampsia. And we know that preeclampsia is associated with increased risk of acute kidney injury, which ultimately then put these ladies at risk of chronic kidney disease going forward. And thirdly, one of the, the, the reasons why uh, some of the conditions that are more common in females, it has to be autoimmune disease. Autoimmune diseases such as SLE, systemic sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis, they occur more commonly in females. If I were to give an example with an SLE, which is an autoimmune disease, a condition where the body's immune system actually affects and attacks its own cells and tissues. So it tends to be more common in childbearing uh, reproductive women with a ratio of just nine out of 10 in females and one to 2% in, in males. And why is that women, we carry the XX chromosome and this XX chromosome actually, it tends to express more of the genetic material that are associated with the immune system. So because the basis of an autoimmune disease is the dysregulation of the immune system. So we can imagine that the fact that we're expressing more of that, should there be a dysregulation of the system, we are therefore likely to, to suffer from that. And secondly, other autoimmune diseases such as systemic sclerosis, even though they tend to occur later in life, about 40 to 50 years, at that stage it's because of declining level of the estrogen at that time. We seem to be unfairly penalized on a constant level, whether it's from our genetic composition or looking at aspects of hormonal depletion. But it really is important that we know that these factors exist. How can women deal with issues like this? Is this a case of uh, being aware of certain elements or is there medication that can be taken? Awareness is the most important thing, awareness and education, because most of these illnesses actually, they remain asymptomatic for quite a long time. And more often than not, when symptoms get to develop, most of the target organ damage has occurred. In this case, we'll, we'll, we'll focus on the kidney. And uh, most chronic kidney disease um, symptoms occur quite late. So what, what would be the symptoms that ladies need to look out for? One, fatigue, loss of appetite, nausea, and vomiting. And typically those ones, if we focus on the kidney, the sensor results that an ailing kidney is now unable to clear the toxins as a normal kidney would. And sometimes uh, patients can present quite late to a point that by the time they come, they already have the complications such as anemia, two, such as fluid overload with shortness of breath and with uh, electrolytes imbalances, such as high levels of potassium. And we know high level of potassium in our body is associated with poor cardiovascular outcome and also very high levels of urea because the kidney is no longer filtering out the toxin. And high urea, it can present from fatigue to an extreme level of a confusion. And at times patient can actually have seizures from that. So those, those are the common in general uh, symptoms that ladies need to look out for in general. And assuming if one is aware of any of those types of symptoms, they must go to a healthcare practitioner to at least have a checkup. 
Correct, correct. So we need regular checkups because most of them remain asymptomatic for some time. Listening to some of the elements that you're talking about, we really see this interconnectedness of our, our bodily functions and how things operate. And as I was doing research for today's show, it strikes me, and also you mentioned in our earlier part of the conversation, that kidney disease is often a secondary effect of other conditions like hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, and diabetes. And if I look at uh, some statistics from the Diabetes Atlas, it indicates that 24 million people in our continent, one in 22, have diabetes. These are non-communicable diseases that if we could prevent, it would seemingly alleviate the incidence and severity of forms of kidney disease. What are your views on this? That's correct. So non-communicable diseases are prevalent and incident. It is certainly going up globally, continentally, and locally. I believe that we've for too long shifted our focus to communicable disease and somewhat give it a back foot on, on non-communicable disease. And I think it's time we actually rise up and give them attention. Diseases such as diabetes and hypertension, they tend to present late, especially in our developing countries and poor, poor countries. And this is because of lack of access to, to services and also lack of awareness. So it is far more important to actually create awareness and education um, around them to try and prevent the complication. It is far more costly to deal with the complications of diabetes and hypertension than to actually try and prevent the disease itself. So how can we achieve that awareness, education, leading a, health, a reasonably healthy lifestyle, regular exercise and eating healthy. Be aware and take cognizance of the changes that occur in our body. And one of the things you mentioned is the issue of disadvantaged communities and disadvantaged areas. So, so either it's a, a lack of facilities or it's a lack of access. And if I recall, approximately 50% of the female population in the continent is based in rural areas. So immediately you are put at a disadvantage because you simply don't have access to those services. That's very, very true. I mean, women in rural areas tends to bear the brunt of most of the illnesses than women in urban areas. And it's, it's for multifactorial reasons poor access to healthcare system. If there's a healthcare system, you might find it's not functional. Unavailability of right resources, right medication, quality care. So we really need to be able to cap the problem. So one would ask then what are options that we have to actually alleviate the brunt that these women are faced with? I can think of few. One, education and training and the utilization of community healthcare workers and education being given in this lady's mother tongue so that they can actually relate and understand it better. And what better way than to actually use the people that reside with them within the community? So that's one option. Two, I think decentralization of care, of healthcare system is very important. So what do I mean by that? There needs to be somewhat of an encouraging uh, health uh, healthcare specialists to try and do outreach from academic centers to either regional hospitals and primary hospital to go and actually support the structures. That way we are able to pick them up early and provide support when needs be and also streamline the referring system. And um, 
three, I think that we need to, to, to be able to train more public health service providers. Every society without a functional public health, it cannot achieve health system quite well. So if we train our public health care providers, we can do better as far as uh, ensuring that these ladies access better quality care that they deserve. Those are great points of intervention. And they're not costly. They're just logical, disseminating knowledge. Absolutely. That, that, that's very, very true. That they're not costly. If you went to analyze the cost of when these ladies ultimately get to make it to a tertiary hospital, when they arrive at the last stages of kidney disease, when it's a matter of accessing or not accessing dialysis, and the impracticality of them being able to access the availability of dialysis, we could do far better if we were to empower primary healthcare as service providers, better if we were to decentralize care and actually go to these communities offer care there. Those who get to, to need care at a higher or tertiary hospital, they would be picked up much sooner. It really echoes the need for prevention rather than cure. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Zonke Dikana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today, we're talking to Dr. Ladilia Makoka, who specializes in nephrology. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Dr. Makoka, turning towards more of a personal perspective, what made you decide to pursue a specialization in nephrology? <laughs> what made me choose nephrology? Wow, I think I got exposed to nephrology during my registrar time. I was really fascinated at how it's such an interconnected discipline. What do I mean by that? It is one of the disciplines within medicine that allows you to interact with almost every discipline, be it surgery, be it endocrine, be it orthopedics, be it critical care, be it oncology. So for me, I find it uh, that I would be a physician who's far more well-rounded. And of course, it's, it's just rewarding. Like I said earlier, you are able to form a long-term relationship with your patient. You can see one patient from an acute state of renal failure, work with them, work them up for chronic kidney disease, up to a point where you work them up to the access dialysis or renal replacement therapy. And once they are there to work them up for transplant and ultimately seeing them being transplanted. So that's for me, I've, I really found it uh, fascinating. And it is one discipline where you are trained to be able to apply the physiological principle when dealing with complex medical issues. So yes, that's what attracted me the most to, to nephrology, yes. You are exceptionally passionate about your field. What would you say have been some of the gender challenges that you've been faced with during your career and what did you do to help overcome them? So most of the gender challenges that I personally actually had to face and be and need to, I would say, survive them is really during my registrar time. I must say it was the toughest four years of my career. It was highly demanding. And having started my registrar time, meaning the training to, to become a specialist while I was already married, having two girls, 
and being a wife, you know. So I, I find myself at the time that there was a lot that I needed to pause and readjust and reassess as to what is important and what is not important. So there's a lot of sacrifices that one had to go through, as difficult as it was, as challenging as, as, as it was, I got to understand myself. I got to understand my personality as to what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses. Because of the high demand of registrar time, I had to be content and be and make peace with the fact that one, I'm not going to be available all the time to everyone. Two, I'm not going to be available all the time for family gatherings for um, in-law responsibilities or gatherings, you know, for church attendance sometimes, you know. And I had to make peace with the fact that along this route, as I'm pursuing this, I am going to lose some of my friends, you know. So, so those were the gender dynamics that I needed to, to go through them. And so how did I survive them? Truly, I must say one needs to have a sound, strong support structure at home, at work, and if possible, at religious or church level that you relate to it, right? So for me, having, having a, a supportive partner was very, very crucial and helpful for me. And secondly, having a very, I must say, supportive helper at my home, for me, that carried me through my registration. So I needed to have that. And also the other way I had to be able to deal with them is actually having a mentor. It's very, very important to have somebody who have walked the road before, to have somebody who holds you accountable to your dreams, to your vision, to say that you know where you're going, you've got to let go of X so that you can achieve your Y. So that that's what's very, very important. Obviously, importantly, it was my faith. My faith really carried me through as well. The support that I had of my faith and my dad through my registrar time, I think I'll be eternally grateful for that. You know, you've really highlighted some of the dynamics or, or let's say the constraints that women are confronted with. And I would imagine that similar experiences are encountered across different industries, but you have to make these, these choices and be quite deliberate about them. And as you say, making peace and not feeling guilty when you are not doing something else and being beholden to other people's time. That's very true. That's absolutely true that you need to reach a point where you are able to make peace with the fact that you are not able to carry everybody with you if you were to achieve that goal that you have, that you've set for yourself or for your vision. Some of the things you're going to have to let go if you want to realize your, your, your vision ultimately. That, that's quite true. And you raised the point of mentorship, which I don't think gets enough attention because people could be, well, who do I, where, where do I find a mentor? Who's going to give up their time to, to help me? Tell us a bit about your experience and, you know, if it was a formal arrangement or how you sought your mentor. <laughs> Actually, um, internal medicine wasn't my first choice at the beginning of it all, to be honest. But when I did my MO time in Welcome, I met a very hardworking, dedicated physician whom really planted the seed of loving internal medicine. And up 
till today. I still communicate with him. I still make him aware of my career moves. I still seek advices. So, so for me, because I had that person in my life and I still do have him in my life, it somewhat held me accountable that there's somebody who has traveled this route. There's somebody who understands what it is to be a registrar. There's somebody who understands how to balance the dynamics of family life, career pathways, letting go of social lives and all of those things. He has done it before. What better person than that person who has done it in this very environment? So yes, it's, it's very important to, to align yourself with people that are better than you, people who have achieved better than you, so that you can realize your shortcomings and they will pick you up. I'm a strong believer in mentorship. And we see mentorship as also a, a variant or let's say a derivative of education because it is all about your, your worldly education. Absolutely. What role would you say that formal education has played in your life and its impact? It really played um, a bigger role. Without education, I don't think I would be where I am or where I think I'm, I'm headed to. Being a daughter of uh, both um, parents, mom and dad, being a teachers, so education for my siblings was was not an, like, there, it's not like it, it was a negotiation. It had to happen. And um, as much as we were raised and born in, in a deep rural Limpopo, um, I'm grateful that my our parents actually worked hard enough and tried their best to, to expose us to at least uh, a good educational system. Because with education, I then became aware of the world outside my comfort zone. I became aware of the possibilities out there. I became aware of the opportunities that education uh, gives one. So for me, education is, is very, very important. And if one were to quote Madiba when he said that education is the strongest weapon that you can use if you were to want to improve the world. So that's that's very, very true, especially for, for a rural girl who had no clue of an outside world to this world of full of possibilities. So yes, education has played a major, major role in my life. You've been exposed to a rural environment. You've been exposed to an urban environment. And obviously, as you've navigated across those worlds, you've encountered different women who have occupied different mindsets, some potentially having more of a traditional view and others having more of a modern outlook. But what would your advice be to women who are perhaps at a crossroads where they are being torn between traditional and cultural expectations of them as women, as mothers, and their own personal ambitions, like attaining an academic education and building a professional career? So you're right. One is exposed to both um, the deep rural sides of life and now the urban uh, side of life. And for, for women, it's never easy. It's really never easy. And it's not only cultural and family-wise. And at times, it's actually even, I mean, at religious expectations that as a woman, you, you've, you've, you've got to, to be available for them. I think my, my one advice to them is that you cannot be everything to everyone all the time. And then if you have your vision set out, you've got to decide who are the important people in your life that got to understand your vision. Those who matter the most, those whom you're gonna have to carry and those whom you're gonna need their support. Surely it cannot be the entire community. Surely it cannot be 
every uncle and aunt out there. If you have explained your vision and your desire to the people that truly matters to you, I think it, you should make peace with that. It is demanding, especially for an African woman, like I've mentioned before, the expectation to meet certain cultural responsibility in terms of in-laws, certain traditional responsibilities in terms of being a sibling, an aunt at home, and religious expectations for that matter in church. So like I said before, you've got to be content and actually make peace with the fact that during this, during this time, you are going to choose your vision. You are going to choose your dream. And then this dream, if it means it's going to be supported by your intimate community, let it be. Because the last thing you want is to try and be everything to everyone at all times. It is stressful. You only have 24 hours in a day. And if you don't make those trade-offs, you're going to compromise yourself. No, definitely, definitely, definitely. If if you cannot actually sit down and write it down and say, this is important, this is not important, this I can live with that for a short one, I'll reach when the family gatherings later when I'm done with X and Y. So that's fine, that's okay. And be aware that, of course, if I'm taking this path, it means I might lose certain friends who we don't share because as we grow up, as we, we, we mature, we desire different things and people choose different paths. So, and it's okay. Thinking about friends, thinking about women, female role models in society are important sources of influence in the way that not only women see themselves, but by perhaps identifying with those individuals and being able to emulate them. Which women would you say have been role models or influences in your life? Right. Um, I think allow me to say that the first woman that I actually got to be exposed to that a woman can wear different hats, it has to be my mom. Uh, just to give a little bit of a background, she was born in the deepest rural, rural of Limpopo. She was the only daughter in the most impoverished places that you can imagine with no dad. And having been able to survive a lot of childhood illnesses, to survive a lot of childhood malnutrition, to reach a point of where she did, she, she did exceptionally well. Because ultimately, she was a mom of six. She was a teacher. She was a church leader. She was a community leader. She was able to adopt and, and raise our relatives. So for me, I used to wonder, how is it that you can have so many caps and on top of that, be a businesswoman at the same time? So she used to tell me that if you understood where I come from, I wouldn't want to go back. So that's why when I work it, I want to make a difference. I understand when somebody say, I do not have the chance. That's why she was willing to give everybody that she could within her abilities a chance. So it has to be the first woman that actually was as a role model till today. She's late now, but I still regard her as my role model. And um, and her staunch faith in God really carried her through her hardships in life until to the very last day that she rested. And secondly, I'm really fascinated by uh, Professor Mamkheti Paking. I haven't met her in person, but I found myself reading a lot about her. I found myself listening to a lot of her interviews. 
uh, from a distance, she appears to be very approachable. She appears to be willing to be in touch with the people on the ground. You know, I, I love academics and the way she relates with students, the way she's there with them. I find it very, very interesting. So she's one of the people that I really, really, really look up to. And thirdly, it has to be May Kungslem Lambonunga. I mean, the changes that she made in the UN. She gave an African woman, she gave a woman out there that it is possible, it is doable, and it is achievable. So yes, those are the three women that truly stand out for me that I look up to. They certainly all have admirable qualities and um, extraordinary values and that they've all done something so purposeful with their lives. Yes, yes, that's correct. We've spoken about these three women who have been leaders in their own right, but across the spectrum, there really is a handful of women occupying leadership roles whether it's in the political sphere, whether it's in in particular in the business space, as well as in academics. How do you think we can develop female leadership capability and mentor future women leaders? A few things. These are the few that are on top of my, my list. One, it has to be open to and making it accessible education for women from a very young age. Education is very important to this woman. And two, leadership skills, leadership workshop, webinars, they're very important. And obviously mentorship, mentorship, mentorship. And above all, we need to to create a society where women are dependable or interdependent on one another. I think in my opinion, we've got to unlearn some of the things and one of them for me is that we've got to unlearn to celebrate the only woman sure be the only woman but can you not be the last like michelle has said michelle obama has said that once you've walked that path and you are successful and that door has been opened for you please don't shut it please lift as you rise that's the only way that will actually make a meaningful impact. Not only do we want to access these roles of leadership, we don't only want to be given seats on these tables, but we want to be partakers in the decision making. We truly belong where decisions are made, because I feel like we are somewhat given the seats, but not necessarily be part of the actual decision making, as if like our role is to sit and actually listen and take notes and minutes and make sure meetings are run well and webinars are carried and organized well. We've got to lift one another. We've got to educate one another. We've got to be able to say, let's make ourselves accessible to the young women that are looking up to ourselves. I think for me, that is very, very important. And we can only do that if we emphasize mentorship, mentorship, mentorship. I love what you're saying, looking at how people who have made it give back effectively and lift. One of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who've all made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of expertise is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. I know that you've mentioned your faith, for example, as being one component People speak about discipline, people talk about perseverance, uh, people talk about particular people in their lives. So if you could please share with us what you would say have been some of the factors to your success. 
Um, I would say, like you've mentioned, my faith and my belief in God is one of the most important things that just carried me through. And because of that, my vision of where I intended to go became very clear. So for me, it's not so much about the goal, but rather the process itself. Because I believe you tend to appreciate and enjoy the goal as the end result if you enjoy it and enjoyed the journey itself. So small goals that you achieve, celebrate them, acknowledge them, as long as they're leading you towards the end result, which is your goal. So the strategies that worked for me and they still do work is formulate a support structure around you, be it partner, be it a helper at home, be it somebody you can rely on that can pick up your child if you're unavailable to do that. Be grandparents to to those who still have uh, parents that are still active and able to assist. And of course, the other strategy that I used is to have a mentor that holds me accountable to my dreams. And align yourselves with friends and colleagues that share your goal so that you can travel the road with people who also aspire to achieve the same goal that you want to achieve. So for me, those are the structures that I've used. And I find routine works better for me. Being aware of what time I need to wake up and what time I need to sleep, what can I slot in, what can I not slot in. This time is for email, this time is for this. For me, having a routine in life really, really kept me sane and still that. So those are the structures that I would say I have used and I think I'll still use going forward. Those are very practical points of advice. And I think that anybody can access those elements. If you just apply your mind, put those structures in place, develop your routines, be systematic and allow the the system to help run your life. Absolutely. Yes, the goal is important, but please enjoy the gene. Allow that system, allow that process to actually carry through so that you don't you don't get um, disheartened along the way. This is part of the process. I will get through it. It's okay. And thinking about journeys and, and processes, please tell us about some of the pivotal moments in your life when you were growing up. Oh, God. <laughs> I can name three that were really, really pivotal in my life. Like I told you, I grew up in the deepest rural area of Limpopo where we had no access to a telephone, where the entire community was depending on one telephone in a supermarket. So here I was, I had applied to all universities in in South Africa, and I had put a telephone number for that particular supermarket, which happened to be my parents' supermarket, as a landline so that they can reach me back. So I would spend, after passing my metric, I would literally sit in the supermarket and actually wait for that phone call. It has to be the grace of God, really, that, that phone call did come. And when the gentleman that answered the phone said, they are looking for this person, I'm like, oh, that's me. And I answered and they're like, you were accepted. I never screamed like that in my life. So that is one of the moments that was really, really well, important in my life. Yes. So being accepted in medical school, uh, being able to pursue the career that I wanted for long, that has been a dream. And being uh, able to complete it within the first time, that, that was very important for me. And uh, second, it has to be the day I became a mom. I think for any woman who's a mom, that is the most amazing thing. Amazing, amazing thing that any woman who's a mom has gone through. So yes, that is one of the, the most important um, moments in my life because everything changed, yet it remained the same and yet got complicated. And... Um, I think for me, 
the last one is not so much on a joyous uh, note, but I celebrated for one reason. I think the moment leading to my mom uh, passing, they remain very crucial because I think we spent rather a quality time towards the end of her life. And because she was prepared that her time might be coming to near quite soon. The last conversation that I had with my mom, it is one thing that I still hold quite dear to my heart. And that has prepared me to quite a lot of life challenges. And it has somewhat um, made, me, made me a bit of a stronger person, a bit of a more patient person, and a bit of more of a tolerant person. Her last word to me, till today, whenever I hit a challenge, I remember our conversation. Don't be hasty in making decisions. Think about it. Slip it through before you make a decision. So our last conversation is really, really, really very important to me. So those are the three most important uh, moments in my life. Those are really poignant experiences that touch so many aspects. Lastly, as we close out our conversation today, please, can you use this platform to share a few words of motivation or inspiration to girls and women who are listening to us on the continent? I think my last um, words to any woman, wherever they are, at any part of this continent, be it the deepest rural, be it the most disadvantaged corner of this continent, be it in the urban areas, be it in the location, be it anywhere, is that it is surely not as bad as it used to be. It is possible, it is doable, and it's certainly achievable. I would say chance at times does open doors, but luck is that which happens when you are prepared for the opportunity that you've been yearning for. So my parting ways is that be prepared. If you want to be somewhere, if you have a vision, be prepared for such opportunities because it is such a disappointment that you wish and you dreamed so hard to be something. And when the opportunity rises, you are unprepared. And you can be prepared by multiple things. I cannot emphasize the need to do your research in the fields that you aspire and find out who are the women who have walked that road. Learn about them. Sometimes it's not easy to actually meet them in person. So it is truly possible. And the world is full of possibilities. The world is full of opportunities for those who are prepared. What a fantastic message. So, so inspirational. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing your time with us on the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been truly an honor. I'm truly humbled to have been invited to to really come and have a conversation with a doctor of your caliber. Really, I'm, I'm truly honored. Thank you. And we wish you all the very best of luck in this incredibly meaningful discipline that you work in saving lives. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Dr. Ladile Mokoko, who specializes in nephrology. 